So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. So far on the show, we've been talking to a lot of political leaders, a lot of MPs and MPPs and people who are directly involved with the issues. But there's a whole set of people that we don't really see or get to talk to. The behind the scenes people. Yeah, the shadowy figures behind Canadian politics. Lisa and Warren Kinsella is who we were speaking to. Warren Kinsella is best known for taking the war room model that became, you know, now infamous and copying that and bringing it to Canadian politics while he was working for Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. I met both Lisa and Warren during the Toronto municipal campaign last time around, and they just struck me as incredibly interesting and engaging people. But more than that, I wanted to give our listeners some insight into what these, you know, quote unquote shadowy figures actually are like in person and the kind of stories that they have to tell. So are we looking at, you know, Frank and Claire Underwood here? Like, has Warren pushed somebody in front of a subway? (laughs) Well, now you've just given away season one, so (laughs) or season two, just putting that out there. Um, But no, not at all. And that's what I think is so funny is that people tend to have these misconceptions of backroom political operatives, of being these like shady figures who are handing off you know, dollar sign money bags to politicians and wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and that it all gets done. But in reality, it's just like you're running mini campaigns all the time. And I guess that doesn't make for exciting television, but it does make for good storytelling. I'm Vicky Mochano. I'm Supriya Devetti. And from Canada Land, this is Commons. This episode of Commons is brought to you by Samara. Now, we all know an everyday political citizen. Maybe it's the Facebook friend who always asks you to sign a petition or a neighbor who keeps you posted on local issues or even the coworker who volunteers to help those in need. These are the unsung heroes that Samara Canada wants to shine a light on, and they want you to nominate them as an everyday political citizen. Everyday Political Citizen is a contest. It celebrates the people who give a shit about our democracy and take the time to get political. The contest is run by Samara, a nonpartisan organization that collects stories about ordinary people working in big and small ways to create positive political change. Sabria, if you had to nominate somebody as an everyday political citizen, who would you pick? Okay, so this may sound a little bit weird because I don't actually know her. We've never met, but I love what she did. And that person is Bianca Spence. Who's Bianca Spence? 
So Toronto has these subway cars that were notoriously hot uh, because there was no air conditioning in them. So Bianca Spence is just an everyday political citizen who described herself actually as a regular, warm, sweaty, disgruntled commuter. And she challenged Mayor John Tory to ride the entire subway line end to end in one of the cars that had no air conditioning. At the end of it, John Tory admitted to reporters that he was actually uncomfortably hot and would look into the TTC, which is the, the Toronto Transit Commission, and how they could better the commute for, you know, everyday Torontonians. So if you know somebody in your life who's like Bianca Spence, be sure to nominate her for the contest today. It's fast and easy. Just grab their email and picture and go to samaracanada.com slash CanadaLand. Once the nominations are in, a jury including Margaret Atwood, Rick Mercer, and Carmen Aguirre will select the winners. So nominate your everyday political citizen by October 13th at samaracanada.com slash CanadaLand. So, like, what's it like working with him, Lisa? I mean, you see him at home, you see him at work. (laughs) It's lovely and fun, and we never argue at all. (laughs) And Warren just gave me the finger, because, of course, no one could see that. Uh, it, It does get challenging, I think, when you're mixing business with pleasure. But in the gig we're in, you know, we do crisis communications, public relations, government relations. So we kind of delineate the practice a little bit. So I'm the uh, the dirty, rotten lobbyist, and he sticks more to the communication side of the business. But it's worked out so far. We've been working together for about four years, four and a half years. You mentioned you're the dirty, rotten lobbyist, Lisa. I myself have dabbled in the dark <laughs> arts of government relations and lobbying. What exactly would you say a lobbyist does? Because I think there's this huge misconception out there. Oh, totally. That we're, you know what I mean? Like it's House of Cards handing duffel bags with money signs on them to politicians. And then it's like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, cigar in a back alley. And then that's it. Don't get me wrong. I love Kevin Spacey. And if I, if I could do GR that way, I probably would. But of course, yeah, we, we're Canadian and we do everything the right way. And I joke about being the dirty, rotten lobbyist because people do have this bizarre idea about what it is we do. But as I say to Warren and others, if your car breaks down, you don't hire a plumber. So if you need something fixed in government, you hire someone who knows how government works. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do. And what I like most about it is that GR is all strategy and tactics. It's always like this mini campaign you're on because you're trying to go out there and achieve something for your client. I was honored to have been in the Yukon where we were announcing $5.3 million in joint funding between the federal government and the Yukon government to go to a cultural center for the Karkosh Tagish First Nation. So it's the wins. Both Warren and I like to win. We're, <laughs> we're adrenaline junkies with aversions to physical pain, or I am anyways. So I don't jump out of airplanes. I lobby governments. You should put that on a t-shirt somewhere. <laughs> 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 so you're both wearing uh, actually you're not anymore Lisa but you're wearing a hoodie that said POTUS with the what's that sign called the, the female, the female symbol for the yeah. O, for the O. Uh, and Warren you're wearing a dump Trump t-shirt are you guys worried about what's going to happen with relations with America if Trump is actually elected yeah people should be I still think he's going to lose because she's got such a head start as most democratic candidates have had for a generation right. in the electoral college so you know, but also just in terms same. of her ground game and like her yeah, GTE that's operations. Right. Her get at the vote. Yeah. That's actually one little reported fact. Like we're going to New York on Sunday 
to help out at her Brooklyn headquarters. Like they've just got a massive machine on the ground and he doesn't, right? He's all air war and he's all tweets and, you know, crazy shit. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's obviously there's, she's got some demographic problems with, you know, the so-called millennials. And so now if we're talking comparatively in terms of war room and I don't want to compare politics because obviously it's very different. We don't elect our, prime minister directly but what's being in in a war room like in the u.s versus canada aside from just the sheer amount of money that's involved well i uh like i started the first war room in canada and you're the guy i'm the guy you're the war room guy because i copied what carville and stephanopoulos did i was just a mere child at that time well no it was 92 i used to when i worked for kretzing when we were in opposition i loved the new york times every every day and during the Republican convention, when they were renominating George Bush Sr., they were having their convention, the Astrodome in Houston, and it was your typical reaffirmation convention. Right. And they had all their messages like six months in advance and everything. And um, I started seeing these references in the Time stories about this group who were in Houston just driving the Bush people crazy. So Bush would be on stage and he'd say something and a fax would come in. That was the days when (laughs) there were faxes and land in every news organization's fax machine saying what he just said is the following. It's factually incorrect. Here's the truth. Here's a citation. And I was like, oh my God. That's what I was made to do. That's me. That's what I have to do. To drive people crazy. (laughs) I was going to say shit disturb and push people's buttons. And not not just other candidates. It happens at home too. But that was Betsy Ross and Stephanopoulos and Carville. So Kretzia, with some reluctance, let me get in touch with them. And Carville's point to me was the media, Adam, is completely split a billion times. You know, C-SPAN and CNN there and Newsworld as it then was in 1989 here, and everything's now changed. Somebody who's got a blog is as important as Jeffrey Simpson in the Globe and Mail. I hear you have a blog. Yeah. yeah it's not a blog. <laughs> I hate that word. It sounds like shit. Blog, blog, blog. It's not. It's a website. It's a website. I know, I know. I, I said that purposely. Website. <laughs> so that's what we did. We only had like eight people in it for the national campaign in 93. And it was just driving Kim Campbell crazy. That was our objective when it turned out okay. So now you've both been in war rooms. And I guess people have this sort of TV-esque version of a war room in their head. Like, are politicians really as TV-like, I guess, in in terms of bombastic? And they're like throwing papers around and they're like, get me this. And uh, what the fuck happened here? And get me those poll numbers. And (laughs) No, I I don't think that they're the television characters that we see before I got into some are, but before I got into politics, you know, the West Wing came out about three years before that. And I think all of us, with the exception of Warren, because he just doesn't want to admit it, we had all hoped that that was going to be what it was going to be like when we went on to Parliament Hill. And of course, it's nothing like that whatsoever. But, you know, the war rooms itself, you know, you don't do a lot of direct work with the politicians unless you need them to go and do something for you. And there was always a couple of folks on the Hill when we were in that war room in 2009-ish, 2010, who were willing to go out and help us. But for the most part, it's just a hodgepodge of political hacks who all get together and brainstorm ideas, and then we go out and execute. And actually, that it reminds me, I didn't answer your question earlier, so I apologize. The war room in the U.S., is different than Canada, or at least the way we did it in the Liberal Party. If you look at the movie about the war room in 92, 
that the Clinton guys did with Carville and Stephanopoulos and Betsy Wright and so on, they referred to the war room as basically the entirety of the campaign in Little Rock. And war rooms, as I, you know, I see them, as I define them, is just a group of people, a small group of people doing quick response. Like rapid-fire correction, rapid-fire reaction. Right, or trying to change the channel if you're uh-huh. having a rainy day. But they're just one part of the overall campaign. There's the ad people, there's the policy people, there's tour people, there's the leader support, et cetera, et cetera. But the war room is just one part of that. It's not the whole campaign. So what's, uh, what's the dumbest thing either of you have ever heard a politician say? You've been around longer than me. Well, I mean, it's all the notorious stuff. The way any campaign works, like six months before it gets started, everybody has, the two of you know what I'm talking about, it's a grid, mm-hmm. right? And you have your announceables. So you've got Friday is your health day, and then the Monday is your law and order day and all that stuff, and you line up all your resources according to those days. And the job of guys like me is to get you off of your health day. So I want you to talk about our issue whether it's taxes or whatever it is. So I want to blow up your health day. So a war room is successful if you can get your opponent to talk about your positives. This is a very diplomatic answer, Warren. No, but it's just getting... So Kim Campbell, you know, when she said an election is not a time to talk about policy, yeah. that was great because we got like three days out of that. And it's just math, right? If you got a 36-day campaign or a four-week campaign... And you are not talking about your stories for 25% of it. For one week, you can't win. You've lost 25% of your opportunity to tell your story. A recent example, too, was what was it? The 2011 campaign when they were the leaders debate. And you had Jack Layton who went after after Michael Ignati of saying, you don't even show up for the job. How do you expect a promotion? How do you expect a promotion? And it was true. Ignatieff did not show up in the House enough. I worked for Ignatieff both on his leadership campaign and in his office, and we had some trouble getting him out there a lot of the times. And Jack Layton saying that during the debate, that was the moment. And that was the moment where Ignatieff should have responded and he didn't and the end you and i were not working for him at that point no we we were not working (laughs) but we were watching it on tv and And you're our friend sharp one of our friends who's was his press secretary it was the one of those instances where you just break your promise not to have anything to do with him again and we spoke to him and said he has to respond. You've got to get in the post-debate scrum yeah. and respond. You've just suffered a major wound. Right. And he's like, we don't think so. And then the de- New Democrats, the yeah. Dippers, <laughs> were running paid on it knew. right after the debate. Mm-hmm. So they knew they were going to do it. Uh-huh. They prepared to do it. And then they had paid to support what Leighton did. And that was the end of Ignatieff. I just want to back up because we, we keep mentioning Kim Campbell, but I think a lot of our listeners might not even know who Kim Campbell <laughs> is. probably true. Um, so Kim Campbell was prime minister. For uh, five minutes. For, yeah. <laughs> no, you guys make fun of her. The Canada Day weekend in 1993, she was the most popular prime minister mm-hmm. in the history of Poland. Really? But she was perfect. Like on paper, she made sense. So, so she's first female prime minister. Progressive she, conservative. Minister so of has, Justice. Yeah. Like they had this picture of her that became kind of emblematic of her with naked shoulders holding up her lawyer's robes. Mm. And it was brilliant because it was like a woman. She's like naked shoulders, kind of cool and hip and un, non-traditional, but really smart. And she got a law degree. Like that was her. And she was killing us. And I had been researching her for a year. And I knew everything she'd said since basically her first year of high school. 
And because um, she had a big mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I went to see Kretzian Stornoway and I said, she's kind of nutty. And I showed him this stuff and he was just like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, we can't get wait to, because we, everybody in BC knew that she was kind of a kook. Right. So our job was just to tell the story nationally, what everybody knew in BC. So after decades of this kind of work, you kind of make friends, but you also make enemies along the way. How do you guys deal with that? Everyone likes me. <laughs> yeah, they, Warren? Yeah, they don't like me. Yeah. Uh, I, I judge people by the quality of their friends and their enemies. So some people you just want to have as an enemy. But no, I mean, it, for me, it's it's the war room stuff, right? When I come after somebody, I guess I don't hold back. And they don't like it, <clears throat> understandably. And, you know, I expect them to shoot back and stuff. And if I can knock them off their day, I'm having a great day. So usually these fights, all the stuff that goes back and forth happens in the context of a campaign. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, it's like hockey. You know, you take off the jersey and people shake hands. But some people, yeah, you know, they're going to piss on my grave, I think. You're also um, a lawyer by training. And you're not afraid to send lawyers letters and and get people to (laughs) cease and desist. Like, do you think that works? Because I mean... It's a tactic. Yeah. It's a tactic. And I've ceased having feelings long ago. <laughs> and my object, I, it happens every campaign. And like you try all the usual tactics to get somebody to move off of something that's hurting your campaign or whatever. And you throw everything you've got at them. And that's how it is. Because the media environment we're in now, including you know what we're doing right now, David Schenk calls it data smog, right? Mm-hmm. So people are bombarded by hundreds of thousands of words and images every single morning before they even get to work or to school. So the challenge that people like us have is breaking through the data smog and getting them to pay attention to what we want them to pay attention to. And that's why I think the Clinton people underestimated Trump because he understands TV better than anybody I've ever seen mm-hmm. in a campaign. And he, you know, he's a piece of shit and all the rest <laughs> of it, but he, he's really good at TV And she still clearly believes in ideas and decency and public service. And his audience are like, what's that? His genius is, well, here we are talking about him, right? Right, yeah. I actually can't tell you what she did last night. I can't remember. I know what he did last night. He was up tweeting at At 3 3 (laughs) a.m. And we're all going how stupid that is. But here we are all talking about him. And, you know, it's issue substitution, and he's the best at it I've ever seen. So maybe he's going to have the last laugh because he has changed politics. And Rob Ford, I think, was the first iteration of that in this country. Right. Maybe Ralph Klein, Mel Lastman, but Ford was the purest distillation of it, which is it kind of doesn't matter what you say anymore. It's just getting now, noticed. When you say that, do you mean it's because we kind of live in this quote unquote post-factual society in a way? Or is it just that you're trying to grab headlines? Two things. Firstly, it's the audience. So the audience believes that people like us are in our essence liars. They think all of us lie all the time, irrespective of ideology. Because we're latte sipping elites? You're, <laughs> you, you two are lobbyists. And yeah. I, I love the fact that you, you're unafraid to call yourself that. But all your colleagues won't call themselves that because they're afraid they think it's something that's dishonest. And the public smell that. And they think that everybody in politics is a liar. So when the mainstream media says Trump's a liar, the public goes, well, so? So so she. 
Yeah. So is everybody else. So that's the one thing. But the other thing is technology, right? It's these things. Everybody can be a contributor to the discourse and everybody's an editor. And so there's just too much stuff going on. So the person who is going to dominate the agenda is the one who speaks louder <laughs> and is more colorful and more brash. And that's him. Well, I think, too, you know, both Ford and Trump, what they also both had in common is that these two middle-aged and the other one's just old because he's 70, rich white guys were able to position themselves as the outsiders in the campaigns. Yeah. And people are buying into this. Blue-collar billionaire. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I, I don't fucking understand how a single person... A thinking person can honestly think that Donald Trump is a freaking outsider in a campaign. I think I have an answer. It's because they like how he freaks out and pisses off people like us. They dig the fact that he drives us crazy, right? So he'll say something outrageous and then all, you know, it's a panel upon panel upon panel on CNN going, oh, tut, tut, this is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And his guys look at it because they're mainly guys and they go... Right on. Yeah. I hate, what's the guy you're in love with on CNN? Anderson Cooper. Right. Everyone's so, in love with Anderson Cooper. Yeah, I am too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, they love that he gets bugged. Yeah. That's another reason why I'm going to vote for Trump because he bugs what Goldwater called the pointy-headed elites. Eggheads. And um, so it's a change, right, in, I think, the way politics is. But it's is, not just men. Know. It's married women too. Married women are supporting Trump. So no. their husbands think. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there could be some interesting swings in the in the demographics on E Day, but I don't know how any woman or any person could support such a racist, bigoted, you know, misogynist, you know, bully, and he makes no apologies for it. His calculation was, and he's obviously wrong, is the primary audience is the same as the general audience. That's obviously what he decided. And we all know that that's not true. Let's switch this back to to Canadian politics. You know, both conservatives and the NDP have their own leadership races. Conservatives are, you know, they actually have candidates fielding. So it's a little bit more interesting. What do you think either the NDP or conservatives have to do to take on Trudeau and the liberals in any sort of meaningful, significant way? Well, this is where it gets a little interesting for me. So I'm a registered liberal and I make no bones about it. But I have a best friend who happens to be a member of the caucus of the Conservative Party of Canada. And I think that uh, what needs to happen if the Conservatives want to stay relevant is I think Michelle Rempel needs to run for leader of the Conservative Party. Warren, do you think she'd be good? Yeah, I do, because she gets under Trudeau's skin. You You can see that she does. But they also need to keep doing a little bit of what they are doing in the House. They're the best opposition uh, I've seen in maybe a generation. What they're doing under with Ambrose the, right now. Yeah. with the order paper questions, what they're doing to access to information stuff. You know the stuff about Gerald Butts and Katie Telford and Jane Philpot and all the little expense stuff. Like as I always like to say, big political graves get dug with little shovels, and this stuff is hurting them. And it's not even a year yet. And the conservatives are, but their leadership race, it's a joke. It's like this parade of pygmies. That's why they should have, uh, that's why they should have Michelle run. Because to me, it's like physics, right? You get, Politics is about responding to what's going on on the other side. Mm-hmm. Like Trudeau was a specific response to Harper. Harper was a specific response to Martin. They address the deficiencies of the guy or gal who was there before. 
And you're not going to beat Trudeau by trying to be like Trudeau, you know, the selfies and all that horseshit. It, you've got to have somebody who actually is better at policing him a little bit more serious. Because at some point, I believe the country is going to wake up and say, I'm tired of all the social media stuff and the selfies and stuff. And Yeah, you, you don't think it's just this is where we are now in terms of... No, I think at some point, and it usually would be in the context of a terrorist event or mm -hmm. some economic calamity where they just go, you know what? I would like it if he was just fucking serious for 30 minutes. His strength is his weakness. He's so good at this stuff, but at the same, by the same token, I can easily see the country one morning going, he's full of himself. He's kind of narcissistic. And at that moment, that's when the conservatives or the new Democrats pounce. And um, it is coming. I just don't know when it's going to come in the next you know, three years. You, know, you guys were talking about having a primary audience for Trump versus the general, and that's you know, arguably one of his biggest fuck-ups. Do you think, in a way, that's kind of what Kelly Leach, his campaign, is doing? 100%. And, and, and doing all this Canadian value 100%. stuff? Like, how the fuck are they going to dig themselves out of that hole in 2019? Yeah, no question. And then with Chris Alexander jumping into the race, too. I mean, I guess they're not afraid to split the racist vote, right? <laughs> yeah, so I think that's exactly what she's doing. But the problem is that everyone so far who's jumped into the conservative race is a right of center conservative. We're not seeing well, any. Not Chong. Not Chong, but I mean, we haven't really seen or heard much. No, from what, him at uh, all. Chong needs to say to Kelly Leach, and when they have one of their debates, you're one of the reasons we lost. Yeah. You, you like are one. You, you yeah. actually personally are one of the reasons yeah. we lost. You were actually one of those rare instances in politics where we can point to one person on one day with one statement and say. You made us lose because <laughs> yeah. they haven't said that to her because they're all kind of being a little bit nice. But, I, you know, I give Nick Cavallis credit. He has done an amazing job for her. And she was just this unremarkable kind of non-entity. And he has made her the discussion. And that takes some doing. But is that good when you're part of the discussion in a bad way? Like, are you the, like all publicity is but good publicity? Not, she's not after thing? you and me. But, you know, Nixon used to say... To get the nomination, you run as far to the right as possible. But then once you get it, you start running back. Right. And Trump hasn't done that. Like, he's just kept running to the outer fringes of the universe. And, and just for our listeners, Kavalis is um, her campaign manager. Right. Yeah. And so they, he's done an expert job of getting her to kind of set the ballot question and to be the story. But the question is, can she now peel it back? The problem is she's appealing to the people they've already got. She needs to reach out to women and to, you know, slightly progressive people. And with the shit she's saying, she's just not going to be successful doing that. So you guys are both liberals. I'm well, a Democrat. You're, you're, yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. um, what do you think of the current Trudeau government? Like, how do you think they're doing? Well, I'm pretty happy with them because we just made that $5.3 million announcement in the Yukon last week. So in terms of you know, some of the things that... Sorry, I we, just got distracted. Somebody just texted me something about a topless stenographer. I don't know what it's about. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, they just did. Oh. Some guy in Hamilton, I know. Welcome to my life, everyone. So, so I and in terms of where I work, so mostly we have a lot of First Nations clients. Mm -hmm. So, I'm pleased with what 
they've been saying about reconciling the relationship that Canada has with First Nations and Indigenous communities. I like all that. I like the missing and murdered Indigenous women inquiries. I'm a little disappointed that um, they're not addressing some of the smaller needs that are big, but a bit smaller, on reserve and on self-governing lands. But overall, I think I said on a radio program last week, it's not in the honeymoon phase anymore, it's a committed marriage. Yeah. Uh, however, I, we'll I, I I do think, you know, and as Warren said before, it's never the crime, it's always the cover-up. And the Tories have been incredibly disciplined with these order paper questions. And the one on McCallum, paying expenses to bring his chief of staff from Thailand, yeah. that order paper question went in in June. So we're just now hearing about it now that he... he may not have told the truth. Well, he didn't. He had to apologize to the House. But I, I think Trudeau has had two monumental achievements. Ironically, one's like Harper. Harper's achievement was unifying the warring factions of the right, right? The Reform Party yeah. and the Alliance and all that stuff. Trudeau unified the Liberal Party and the New Democratic Party. He, <laughs> he stole the Dem- New Democratic Party away from it. Yeah. So that was achievement number one. Achievement number two was... You know, 90% of his caucus and cabinet have never been in politics before, Mm -hmm. not at that level. And that he's been able to keep that all together and not spin off into 15 million big scandals is to his credit. The problem is they overpromised, right? You know, I grew up at the knee of a a prime minister who always taught us you underpromise and you overdeliver. But now you're starting, we're having chiefs who we represent say to us, well, where's the beef? Like, you know, let's go. Yeah. He said he was going to do A, B, and C, and he hasn't done any of it. So that's the big problem they've got. What's your favorite all-time political insult or rivalry? Well, I mean, there's some classic ones. Like Pat Buchanan, what he wrote for Spiro Agnew, the nattering nabobs and negativity. I love alliteration. So that was a, a classic. The best insults to me are always the visual ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, the best one to me was it was Clinton Bill in a debate. I forget which one. And the camera's on him and he looks at his watch. <laughs> and it was like, let's just. Let's get this over with. Let's already. just get this over with. It yeah. was like, wow, what an insult. I think the Barney thing is probably one of my favorites. I'm biased. But uh, Warren showing up on, I think it was Canada AM. You, you tell the story. <laughs> I'm from Alberta, right? right? So I know I knew who Stockwell Day was. So he got elected in May of 86 in Red Deer. And all of us knew he was crazy. <laughs> and everybody in Alberta in the Herald newsroom, because I was working there part-time during law school, and uh, we all knew he was crazy. But again, he comes out of Alberta. He'd been treasurer, balanced budgets all the time, spoke French. You know, Manning didn't. He'd been in government. Manning hadn't been. He was young. Kretzian wasn't as young as him. And so on paper, he made lots of sense. But I knew this stuff about him. So again, like we'd done with Kim Campbell, I said to Kretzian, like, he thinks the world is 2,000 years old. Kretzian's like, what? Yeah. (laughs) What? And I was like, yeah, he thinks the world's 2,000 years old. So without getting into the detail of it, CBC did a story. Mm -hmm. Paul Hunter did a story on CBC. We had hoped that it would go, but it didn't just because other stuff that was going on that night. I can't remember what it was. So we had to get attention back to that. The fact that he thought the world like was 2000 yeah. years old. Yeah. So yeah. I went on Canada and with a Barney doll and I was with my buddy, Tim Powers, who's an Alliance guy. 
And we're coming to the end and I said to Valerie Pringle, just wait, just wait, you know, this documentary and he believes, you know, dinosaurs walk the earth. And I said, here's the only dinosaur I held up, Barney, that has recently uh, yeah. coexisted with humans. And the Flintstones is not a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> so I got back to the campaign and it was total silence. And it wasn't like, yay, Warren, yay. <laughs> it was like, and a couple of my buddies said, you're fucked, like you're going to get fired. And I was like, yeah, but I had, we had to do it. And uh, John Ray, Bob Ray's brother, was our campaign manager. He walks in. And he's just the most intimidating guy on earth. And he just looks at me and he goes, be careful. <laughs> <laughs> so I shit my pants. And then the phone rings. And they go, Prime Minister's calling you. And Kretzer goes, tell me the story. Tell me what you did. And, and then he, I tell him, and he's laughing. Let me, he goes, tell me again. <laughs> and that's when I knew I was okay. That's our show for this week. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook by typing in Canada Land Commons into that search bar. Our producer is Kevin Sexton and our music is by Nathan Burley. Our show's website is canadalandshow.com. If you have any questions, please shoot us an email. I'm Vicky at canadalandshow.com and you can always reach Supriya, supriya at canadalandshow.com. The Imposter is out tomorrow, Shortcuts is out on Thursday, and we're back next week. If you like the show, please be sure to support us. Go to patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.